0: To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org, or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. So the Spirit of God leads the Lord Jesus
1: to be tempted so he could pass the test in order to go on with his ministry and be the savior of the world. That's the first reason. The second reason for the Lord to start his ministry is because in order for the Lord to be the savior of the world, the Lord would fight the devil as a man. So the Lord starts his work on earth as a man with the battle with the devil. And he ends this work on earth as a man with his greatest final battle and victory over the devil at the cross, that's where he finally defeats the devil. So this is important also, as it sets the course. I think this is the point that Elizabeth was making here. This is the important because it sets the course of his battle with the devil. So it's appropriate that he starts off with a battle with the devil. There, the Lord's a fighter, and the third reason for the Lord to start his ministry by when this being tempted is because the Lord is our great high priest. He's not just our high priest. He's our great high priest. Nobody in the Old Testament had this title of great high priest. They have, he starts off his ministry by being tempted, showing that the Lord could be tempted. First of all, it shows us the Lord could be tempted as a man, And that made the Lord a special high priest to us, which is the point that Diane was making, which is from Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 4.15, where it says, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So these three key temptations here, in a general sense, they encompass all the temptations that you and I face in life. So from the start of his ministry, he endures these temptations. He's touched with the feeling of our infirmities. And what we see with these temptations is how we look at them here, and we're going to see this, is that they increase in ferocity. They're increasing in intensity. They're increasing in drama as you go from turning desert into a bakery full of bread. And then the next temptation is to gain the admiration of all Jerusalem and all the people by casting himself down in the temple and then finally increases in intensity to gain the whole world, gain the whole world. So that shows how the devil operates, how he increases the intensity of our temptations. First of all, it's interesting that there are here three temptations. That means there wasn't just one, there were three, which meant that the Lord had to overcome the first temptation And that didn't insulate the Lord from facing the second temptation. And when he overcame the second temptation, that didn't insulate him from facing the third temptations. So that shows us, that teaches us that if we win over one temptation, that doesn't guarantee us that we're not going to face another temptation. And looking at these temptations, you know, like that, you know, the one, two, three of what he faced there, it can seem a little discouraging. Oh, I just fought this first one another. another. won. Oh, another one. Oh, no. You know, I mean, it can kind of get you down. But on the other hand, the good news is there wasn't a fourth one. <laughs> there wasn't a fourth one. And that's encouraging that there wasn't a fourth one because it shows that in the case of the Lord, and in our case too, our temptations are numbered and metered by God. If the devil had his way, there would have been a fourth one. There would have been a fifth one and then never ending. But no, the Lord makes it very clear about these temptations in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where it says, there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. So God is numbering, and metering and measuring the temptations that we face and say, okay, that number, no more, okay, that intensity, no more. And it's all designed with the goal so that we're able to bear it, overcome it, and be successful. Okay, now, so the Lord Jesus, he's our shepherd, and he knows what we have to suffer, and he says, and so that now it's the Lord Jesus who is saying to the devil, this far and no more. And the devil has to ask permission, he has to ask permission. Well, how many and what intensity can I? And this is what we see in Job. In Job one twelve. in Job one twelve, we see the devil appearing there, and he's asking for permission. It says, and the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy So That's his possessions. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. And so Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. So he had a permission to go so far, Satan did, and he couldn't go any farther, and that's what it Okay, now. In verse 1, we see for the first time this new character appears. We haven't seen it before in the Bible, in the New Testament here. So he has the name of the devil. Now, we see from the account that, first of all, that the devil is a real person. He's a person. And he's a person, as we can see from this chapter, this account here, he's a person who thinks. He's a person who responds, reacts, and strategizes. He's a person who seeks to persuade. He's a person who seeks to influence. So he's introduced to us in this fourth chapter of Matthew, and really in this fourth chapter of the New Testament. And just as he was introduced to us in the third chapter of Genesis, in the third chapter of the Bible, the word devil in Greek means the slanderer, slanderer. In other words, someone who speaks against someone like an accuser. And we saw from Genesis 3, that the devil also has the ability to possess animals. Don't ask me how he does it, because I don't know, but that's what it is anyway, you see that. In Genesis 3, 1, Genesis 3, 1. It's very interesting when you look at the passage where he first appears in Genesis 3, and you compare that with this passage in Matthew 4. We think back on Genesis 3, 1. Genesis 3, 1. The serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? The woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die? For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took or the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. What a world of trouble started after that. So seemingly good advice, seemingly, and harmless, but not so. So what we see about the devil in this passage in Genesis 3 is that he's subtle, he's crafty. He's subtle, he's crafty. Now, the devil tempts, but the devil doesn't force You know, if Eve had said, the devil made me do it, which actually she did. But anyway, the devil made me do it, that's false. Because the devil only tempted Eve to do it. The devil did not make or force Eve to do that. Eve did it from her own free will, although she was influenced by but nevertheless. So we see from the history there and the history here, as a matter of fact, the devil is actually called in this passage of Matthew 4, the tempter. He's the tempter. So the tempter entices, that he entices, and that's how the devil is described as an enticer in 2 Corinthians 11.3. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So this is the devil. He's a tempter, he's an enticer. Okay, you can use the word seducer. He's a seducer. But when the Lord goes to describe the devil, he chooses two words to describe him in John 8, John 8.44. John 8.44, he says to, to his enemies, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer. That's the first word from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there's no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar. So those are the two words that the Lord uses to describe the devil, murderer and liar. And the devil has a realm in which he's the prince, in which he's the king of, and this realm is described in Revelation 16.10. Revelation 16.10, which says, The fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seed of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. So the devil is the prince or the king over a realm called the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. It's a kingdom of pain. It's a kingdom of darkness. Now, this term, the devil, that's used here in the Bible, the Old Testament doesn't have this term. You will not find this term, the devil, in the Old Testament. Instead, it's the word Satan, Satan, Satan. And you ask yourself, well, what does that mean? Well, it's interesting because we have a unique kind of uh, opportunity to see the definition of this term Satan, Satan, in what King Solomon said to the king of Tyre named Hiram. The King Solomon was explaining to Hiram why he was going to build the temple, why his father didn't build the temple. And he said in First Kings five two, First Kings five two. Solomon sent to Hiram, saying, Thou knowest how that David my father could not build an house unto the name of the Lord his God, for the wars which were about him on every side, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God hath given me rest on every side, so that there is neither adversary nor evil occurrent. So here's Solomon, he's explaining to Hiram that his father David could not build the temple because of all the wars that he fought, and then Solomon is explaining that there's no wars, there's peace. As a matter of fact, that's what the name Solomon means, peaceful. And so explaining all of this to Hiram, that there's peace, there's no war, Solomon says to Hiram in 1 Kings 5.4, 1 Kings 5.4, there is neither adversary, he says, And when he used that word adversary, which is translated adversary, he used the word Satan. In other words, and so that gives us the key to understanding what the word Satan means. It means a warring opponent, a warring opponent, an adversary. So a warring enemy. Satan is a warring enemy of God. Satan is the adversary of God. Satan opposes everything about God. And if there's a person who stands up for God, then Satan opposes that person. So when the Lord Jesus starts his work in this chapter as God who has made himself in the weakness of man, we see Satan step in to fight with the man, the Lord Jesus. And we see the Lord Jesus in this chapter as the consummate fighter with Satan. The Lord is the man of war as he wins this battle with Satan. Now, it's interesting that this first hand-to-hand combat this hand-to-hand battle so to speak between the lord jesus and the devil it takes place in the wilderness in the wilderness okay so as we mentioned here this is right after a time of great blessing of his baptism and then he's led out into the wilderness to be alone now this uh, battle didn't happen in the beginning it happened after 40 days so there was this 40 days when he was alone out there. And, you know, that's a good thing for the Lord to be alone. It's a good thing for us to be alone. You know, we spend, we spend so much time with people that it's just kind of becomes kind of a treat for us to get alone with God. I mean, we get so busy in life that, you know, we go to sleep and we're thinking about all the stuff that maybe we did and we need to do. And tomorrow, you know, I'll get all that stuff done tomorrow. And so when we wake up, the engine starts up again and we're thinking about where we left off before we went to sleep on what we got to go do and so this pressure is there to and so the thought of no, I'm going to have this quiet time alone with God that gets abandoned so easily or if we do have a quiet time with God in the morning there's so much pressure to see that view that quiet time with God is just an interruption in our what we got to get done for the day. So that that happens, then the value of the quiet time alone with God it's lost, it's gone. And it's a, so what's obvious is that it's a tough struggle. It's a tough fight first to even have a morning quiet time with God. And it's a tough struggle to make that quiet time with God a valuable quiet time. It's a tough struggle and it's a struggle of choice. It's a real battle with choice. And the picture that we have of the tough struggle in this matter of spending alone time with God in the morning is the person of Mary, the sister of Martha, where Martha had succumbed. She gave in to the pressure and had abandoned the sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing his word. But Mary struggled against that pressure, and in her struggle she chose And she did sit at the feet of Jesus and hear his word. And this is what's all told to us in Luke 10.38. Luke 10.38 where it says, Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. She had a sister called Mary which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, does not thou care that my sister hath left me alone to serve? Bitter, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken from her. So this picture here is that Mary is struggling, struggling through with her choice, of no matter how much pressure is put on me to get involved with this great list of urgencies, I've chosen to put everything aside and sit at Jesus' feet and hear his word. And commenting on the battle that she faced and the struggle and her choice that Mary had made, the Lord said that she had chosen the one needful thing and that was not going to be taken away from her. So it's a struggle to have a morning, quiet time with God. It's a struggle to make that morning, quiet time with God a quality time with God. But it's the most valuable thing that we can do. So for the first 40 days, when he's out there in the wilderness, he's alone with God. It's a wonderful time. But then after the 40 days, when the Lord's alone, the devil comes to fight against him. So Joseph, that just because we're alone doesn't mean that we're protected from the attacks of the devil. Okay, so now we read in verse 2, that when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward a hunger. So it tells us that, that the Lord was hungry. And this is an example where he was hungry in the end of his life. In, in, in John 1928, John 1928 on the cross, he was thirsty. He said, I thirst. And it shows that he was hungry. He got hungry. He got thirsty and it's encouraging for us. you can have compassion on us. All right, so anyway, so verse 2 tells us that the Lord was hungry after 40 days of not eating. I'm hungry after 40 minutes of not eating, but he's hungry after 40 days. All right. So actually, we're told that we understand that 40 days is like the time. That's the time when it's no longer fasting. At that point, it's starvation. So this is when real starvation sets in, and so he's hungry. He's starting to feel the pains of starvation. At this time, in verse 2, it says, When the tempter came to him. So, you know, it's interesting when it says when the tempter, says, so they have the 40 days have passed, then the tempter comes to him. Shows how the devil, he's been watching the Lord. He's been eyeing the Lord during these 40 days to find the most opportune time to attack. The picture of the devil here watching the Lord and not coming out in the open and confronting the Lord until the Lord was in his weakest state, starting into the starvation. And you know what that's a picture of? That's like a picture of the lion. The lion who stays in the grass, in the long grass, for example, and just follows, is what they do. It just follows a herd of water buffalo or a herd of elephants or a herd of wildebeest or antelope and just watches them. That's all he does. The lion just sits there and walks, come out, and so you can see the lion just kind of watches. And what the lion is watching for is that one individual who's going to be the weakest one in the herd, you know, that young one that gets separated from his mother. You know, that old one who can't keep up with the herd. You know, that wounded one that drops behind. It's just watching for that one. That's what happens there. And, and when that one is seen, then the lion targets that one and just waits patiently for his opportunity when that one is in the greatest vulnerability. Then he strikes. That's what's happening here. That's what the devil is doing here with the Lord Jesus. He's watching the Lord Jesus during these 40 days. He's patiently waiting for the opportunities in his greatest vulnerability, which comes after the 40 days of not eating. And then he moves in for his great assault, his attack. This is important for us to see because it causes us to realize that the devil is a lurking lion watching us. He's watching us. He's waiting for the time of our greatest vulnerability and this is what we're told in 1 Peter 5.8. 1 Peter 5.8. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He's patient. The devil's patient. If it takes 40 days, he's got 40 days. That's not a problem for him. And then he makes the great assault. So he comes out finally in verse 3. It says in verse 3, the tempter came to him, he said, if thou be the son of God, command that these stones be made bread. So what we see here, how the devil attacked the Lord at the point of his greatest vulnerability, which was his hunger. And that shows us how the devil, he's like a tailor. He's like a tailor with our temptations. And just like a tailor measures, studies, the person cuts the cloth to make the jacket that fits perfectly. The devil studies us and he cuts the cloth to make the temptation that fits our vulnerability perfectly. Now, it's interesting how the devil comes on the scene here. You know, like I say, the devil doesn't come on and says, hi, I'm the devil, I'm the adversary of God, I'm the opponent of God, so let's get on with it. He doesn't do that. He really comes on like a friend. He's kind of like a friend. He's saying, hey, pal, I see you're pretty hungry Can I just give you some friendly advice? Why don't you just use your power? You've got all this power. You're the son of God. Why don't you just use this power and turn these stones into nice, hot, steaming, fresh bread. The kind you can smell the yeast. The strategy of coming like a friend is all designed to get the Lord to say, yeah, that's a great idea. Why don't I use my power to turn these stones into bread? Why didn't I think of that? Thanks. That's what he's after. But, of course, you know, the devil would say, no, don't mention it. Just trying to help. In other words, the way he comes on appears so friendly. It's so friendly. He's got some good friendly advice. Well, I'm just coming to try to help you out. You're so hungry, I tell you. What. Just, he's just being a friend. That's the way he appears. And that's how the devil first approached Eve. The devil, again, you know, didn't come to Eve and say, oh, I'm the devil. I'm, you know, the arch enemy of God. Didn't do that. I'm here to oppose you. Anyway, the devil came to Eve, just some friendly advice. He says, you know, did you get a good look at this fruit over here? It's got great benefit to it. It's going to open up your eyes. You know, your eyes, they look a little closed. So it's going to open them up, you know, and you're going to be like God. You're going to have this wonderful knowledge of good and evil. And so that's what he's doing with Eve. He's just saying, can I just give you a little friendly advice here? You know, you're not really going to die, If you eat this tree in the middle of the garden, let me tell you, God's jealous of you. You know, he doesn't want your eyes to be open because you can become greater than you are. So my friendly advice for you is just just do it. Go for it. Eat from that tree. And again, he wants Eve to say, oh, thanks for the good advice, okay. When he does this, comes in with this friend, as a friend, he's really transformed himself into a friendly angel of light that's giving good advice and that's what we are told about him in 2 corinthians eleven 14. 2nd corinthians eleven fourteen 14 says no marvel satan himself is transformed
0: into an angel of light another wonderful day studying the bible with our bible teacher tom Cantor here on friendship with god